popped this fire in my belly. It popped this passion. It popped this need and this one of, I have four years, four years pretty much to the day and my feet are gonna be on that start line. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This week I am honoured to present MBE, BBC Sports commentator, presenter for the Olympics and Ski Sunday and of course Olympic gold medalist Amy Williams. What a journey Amy has had, from studying at Bath University, converting from track runner to skeleton racer and then going on to win the first individual British gold medal in 30 years and being the only British athlete to win a medal in the 2010 Winter Olympics. Amy has appeared in shows such as The Gadget Show, Top Gear, amongst many others. I can honestly say you're in for a treat this week. Now, in case you missed it last week, we hosted double Olympic gold medalist and MBE Alistair Brownlee. At the end of each episode, we hold a two truths, one lie with our guests, and the correct answer for Alistair was that he did not do his first triathlon at the age of seven. Definitely worth a listen if you get the chance. Now let's get into this super exciting episode with Amy Williams. Relax, enjoy. It's certainly an incredibly inspiring story. Amy Williams, thank you very much for joining us today on the Armago podcast. Uh, amazing, amazing to um, read up on, on everything that you've been doing um, over the last last few years. Uh, and your life as a Olympic skeleton racer. Uh, my first question that I've got for you is, I know for a long time that you were battling away uh, to try and become the kind of top uh, skeleton racer in the UK so that you could go and compete uh, in the Olympics. And you certainly clung on to that for such a long time. So what was it about you that you just knew inside that you could go and do it and that you could go and go out there and win and that you could eventually become the top in the UK and, you know, of course, become the top in the world as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I think that's quite a tricky one, actually, because I was talking about it with someone the other day and I kind of felt like I, I never ever focused on purely winning, you know, that, that kind of people say you have this image of imagining yourself up on that podium with a medal around your neck. I kind of never really did that. For me, it was this focus that I just loved training. I loved being in the gym. I loved the physical side of life as an athlete. So that kind of drove me every single day. And then it was more um, going out there for us on the ice and competing and every week, almost proving to yourself that training you had done every day, every week, had it come to something, you know, how did that race then plan out? Uh, had you managed to achieve um, and tick those boxes of what you would aim to do that week? So those little tiny mini goals. And so I think for me, it was more, okay, all these tiny mini goals coming together and then you're clearly trying to peak for a performance at a certain time. And whether that's the Olympics or world championships beforehand or a selection race, so you can get onto the team. It was all these kind of like mini little steps. And I think that kind of um, focus on preparation rather than the focus on the actual event and well, not the event, but that actual kind of glory moment. Mm. Look in their eyes. Everyone knows that look from their parents of that. I'm so yeah. disappointed in you. Um, so I, I don't know whether that it was that or whether you are that, that kind of innate thing inside of you that just 
wants to do really well. And I think once you found a passion, once you found something that you really love, you don't do the sport then, well, certainly not in skeleton. You don't do it for money. You don't do it for fame. You don't do it to be on TV because, well, unfortunately, it's only once every four years that our sport really pops onto TV. So I think you have this innate passion inside of you to want to be really good and to not stop until you feel like you are. Do you think you had a coach uh, that was a bit like your parents in the way that you wanted to please them and impress them? Uh, yes, I, it probably stems back to my very first athletics coach. So that was, I mean, I started an athletics club when, oh crikey, I was probably about 12. I don't know. I'm terrible at dates and you know numbers, <laughs> but I was probably about you know 11 or 12. And um, he was really old school. You know, you're, you're out there in the tipping rain, in the snow, in whatever condition. You work hard. I remember doing hill sprints with him. I remember on a Christmas Eve sweeping the athletics track full, you know, the inside lane to get all the snow off of it. You know, it was kind of proper like, okay, you go, you work hard, you do not complain. And I think he was the one who probably kind of put that pure grit inside of me um, and working through that kind of horrible pain barrier and then finding skeleton you know it's just the coach that's on the team so you had your ice coaches so the coaches that teach you down the ice and then we'd have the coaches and strength coaches who were in the gym with you so you had the sort of two different types of coaches your summer life and your winter life yeah. and for sure there was my first winter coach on the ice he was tough, you know, like if he was in a bad mood, I mean, he'd leave you at the track and go home and you'd have to find your own way home back to the, the lodge or the hotel or whichever accommodation we were staying at. They were almost like youth hostels, kind of very hostily type yeah. things back in the day. So it was brutal. I remember mm. once, I mean, I had to find my way across Germany and, um, you know, it was either, you know, your um, sleds on coach uh, on trains or I managed to nab a lift with someone else and you know it was kind of brutal so I think it, it put in that hang on a minute I could quit at any time I don't have to do this but maybe that really gave you that resilience really gave you that um fight and that fire to be like no no I'm gonna do this I'm, I'm gonna prove to him I'm gonna prove to myself I can do this you'd come across the sort of person that at all these training sessions would give it a million percent and you know from the sort of videos as well where we see you you know going down these tracks at goodness knows what speed 140 k's per hour whatever it is what sort of things did you do then that disappointed your coach so much that he just walk off and leave <laughs> no. wow it was just us as a team i think <laughs> i mean this is like 2002 you know, there was no yeah. real structure to the sport of skeleton. There was no funding. Uh, you know, it was really uh, uh, nothing. And so um, <laughs> it was just his personality as well. I mean, we're friends now. And he was ironically still a coach that was at the Olympics. And I did my very last track walk with him. And, you know, you have highs and lows in every single relationship, don't you? And mm. um, I think you develop as a person. So, no, it wasn't anything I did in particular. It was just he was probably having a really bad day. And we all annoyed him because we probably all didn't get a certain corner right on the track. Um, but, you know, it's that tough love as well, isn't it? It's that real tough love of, 
I guess, different styles, different styles of coaching and a lot of things have changed. I mean, 2002, that's a long time ago now. We're talking almost 20 years. So let's, let's kind of go back to the start where just when you got into skeleton, you transitioned from 400 meter and then you went into skeleton. What, was there a particular day? Was there a particular moment that you thought, you know what, this, this thing might just be for me? So I was at the University of Bath and uh, so I'd done most of my training there. So my athletics club was based there. I mean, Bath was home. My father, my dad uh, works up at the university. So it was kind of like the university and home life was all quite, you know, mixed together. And um, so, yeah, I was training in the gym, still doing, I guess, my athletics as such. And yeah, I just got talking to some people. Yeah, we're all, everyone's just nattering around, you know, hanging out on the athletics, um, just on the stretching mats, doing a little stretch. Oh, what do you do? Oh, yeah. Uh, and there just happened to be some of the skeleton athletes in there. There were some bigger, muscly guys. I was like, oh, what do they do? And I knew they weren't rugby. And anyway, they were bobsleigh. So they were all about to go and do a, a start track session, so a special push track, which was designed and made in 2002 up at the University of Bath so that was for the Salt Lake City Games so the athletes the bobsleigh skeleton athletes can basically put on a different kind of sled that's on metal wheels and it's a kind of train track and you slot the sled on and you just practice that sprint start so the biomechanics of bending over pushing a sled and you dive on and then it just sort of there's a bungee system that pings you back and yeah so they were just sort of going off to do that I, I can't remember precisely but you know I kind of said hey you know whatever can I come and have a go can I see what you're doing yeah. and sort of just before I know it I'm kind of having a go doing all right pretty quick um and they were shortly and I don't know I don't remember weeks months or whatever going off to do a world push championships in Holland in Groningen and uh, I asked if I could go out and compete so I could do compete for Great Britain uh, go into the guest category and you know pay my own way get myself out there and yeah off you go so I did I went out I caught the trains to go out with one of the other girls that was competing for Great Britain and I won my guest category uh, my time I think was second overall if I remember correctly. And yeah, the, the, the performance director at the time, who had just come on board, a guy called Simon Timpson, he said, well, look, you know, you could be good at this sport. Why don't you join uh, this army military ice camp that was going ahead? So the October 2002, this was. Pay your way, uh, see if you like it. And that's when the structure of the team was just coming about. They were just trying to get more funding. They were trying to get UK sport and initiatives to come on board. And so I was kind of one of the very first non-military people to then get into the sport. There was a few of us kind of civilians, shall I say, joining that ice camp. Uh, so all military were there and we just kind of paid our way, joined in. And that was my kind of first taster. So it was, yeah, living in the right place at the right time, being a bit nosy, asking a few questions and um, just giving it a go. Mm, that's so cool. And so when you did your first uh, ice skate down this thing, it must have been, you know, it must have been pretty damn terrifying. Uh, you see people just shooting down them and it's, it, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I'd actually, I'd love to give it a try at some point, but it does look pretty scary. So you know, what sort of things do you have to be doing when, like from someone that has no idea, uh, mm -hmm. about uh, skeleton racing what sort of things do you have to be doing when you're going around these corners you know what sort of things you have to be doing at the start like kind of talk me through the process 
All right. So, so yeah, our sport, it, it does just look like someone's lying on a tea tray and off they go. Uh, in reality, yeah. So we have the, the tracks are different all around the world. So imagine that it's a bit like your Formula One. You have X amount of tracks around the world. They've all got corners left and right, left and right. And they're all slightly different. You know, they're different profiles, different speeds, different lengths. So imagine that. So that's the same. So um, the aim is obviously to get around each corner as fast as possible. You watch those racing drivers and every single centimetre, millimetre counts, you know, to get the fastest line around a corner. It's the same with us. You're wanting that fastest line. And then we have to work with the G-force and the pressure. So in each corner, depending on the size of the corner, the height of the corner, there's different oscillations. So that's the highs and the lows of the curve in the corner. And so you're trying to steer your sled and angle your sled uh, to have the smoothest line around it and to not have those big highs and lows, which if you're at the wrong height, as you come out, you'll flip, you know, you'll smash into the, the corner and you'll flip over and you'll crash. So you're basically lying on the sled. Well, first of all, we're sprinting. So we hold that sled. We sprint as fast as we can. You dive onto it very gracefully in a very certain position. And we have a balance point in the middle of the sled, which just enables us to not skid, to then not have too much grip. You're just balanced on that sled to be able to steer the sled around the corners. Um, so then, yeah, you're pushing through your shoulders. So uh, the sled is designed so there's a pivot in the middle and you have two runners on the bottom of the sled. So the runners on the bottom of the sled is a bit like tires on a car. You can have different grips, different treads, so to speak. Um, and there's a different knife cut out. So depending on how sharp that knife is, is how much grip. And that all depends how, how cold the ice is. Is it um, minus seven ice? We, we take measurements. Is it only minus two? Is it frosty? Is it watery? It, it, the textures of ice for us is, is really important. Mm. And depending on, on all of that, you're basically trying to steer that sled at precise moments um, to be able to get down in the fastest possible time. Um, bearing in mind you can't see most of the time because four or five g's of pressure hitting your body as you go into a corner your head is right down on the ice normally squashed to the side you have to go by feeling you have to feel the pressures your peripheral vision your senses um, you know everything is working to be able to um, figure out where you are in the corner so when you come out, you have a quick peek. You can just about see, am I left, am I right? Where's the next corner? And within a split second, you're in the next corner having to make all those quick decisions. Wow. I so, blabbled a bit there. That, I mean, it's, it's intense. I, I, think I, <laughs> I think I caught on to most of it. It's just, to me, I'm just trying to picture kind of like lying there going, oh, next corner, next corner. It sounds yeah. really challenging. So I think I remember that film, Cool Runnings, is it? Where a long yeah. time ago. The, yeah. Do a little thing where they're like, right, left here, right here, like when they're practicing. Is that, yeah. Do you have to do a similar sort of thing before you do your races? Yeah, so kind of all jokes aside, that cool runnings when they're sat in the bathtub is pretty much without the bathtub what we do. So, yes, I mean, if you go into a changing rooms at the start of um, a race or any training day, whether you're a bobsleigh skeleton or luge athlete, you'll see people visualizing it. So, I could shut my eyes right now. I could stand at, let's just say, Winterberg, a uh, track in um, West Germany. I can stand up there, I can shut my eyes, and I can see every single bit of every corner. So you're imagining it. The fact that we only get six runs down a track 
before a race to learn that track and a track could have anywhere between 14 and 19 corners so the more times that you can go through and run through that track in your head uh, and doing track walks where we walk down the middle and center of the track then obviously the more information you're taking in so watching maybe head cam videos watching old race footage uh we film odd corners on the track with coaches so all of that is such important information especially when we don't have our own ice track we have to learn all these other skills a, a lot more so yeah visualization is a huge part of it and um you know feeling yourself and imagining yourself going through the corners uh, let's not get this wrong this is a very dangerous sport if you if you do cock up and things go wrong so what's usually some of the reasons why people might make these mistakes and they'll go you know off time i know you've in 2002 you had quite a bad injury but yeah what what are the sort of reasons why some people might make these sort of mistakes well the biggest reason is because your sled is at the wrong angle at the wrong part of the corner so uh you haven't managed to steer it you haven't managed to steer through that pressure uh, so when the pressure hits you, your sled is potentially rising up too much. So your sled would just go straight up and it could hit the, the sort of roof bit and then it will push you down. You'll hit the inside wall and then you'll flip over. So that's the biggest thing. So it's just the learning process of knowing what to do in each corner, uh, practicing that, feeling it, learning it. So when you learn, you, you crash a lot. Mm. Hard, you, you bump the walls a lot you got a lot of bruises and then it's learning what it feels like just before it goes wrong <laughs> you know how you can get yourself out of a sticky situation if you've done a slightly wrong steer or you've missed a steer when you first learn you there are slightly easier tracks in the world you start from halfway you lie on the sled and someone just pushes you off and then you build it up so then you're building that up to be able to get to the very top and you know you're you're learning as you go along so yeah there's no breaks you can't just stop halfway yeah you you've just got to kind of go for it and dare i say learn along the way uh, nowadays it the new the new lot coming in you know they literally do have sort of classroom lessons about it mm. for me it was trial and error you know it, we didn't have the same kind of yeah we didn't have the same kind of coaching we didn't have five or six video cameras down the tracks like they do now and all the technology that they have involved and simulators and all this stuff you know none of that existed it was get on the sled go and if you crash you you kind of learn as you go along yeah okay let's i, I want to just touch on injuries for a second because i know the injuries do happen i know you've got your own injuries as well that are quite long long lasting ones um and i've seen that you've said that you have no regrets and that 100 percent, this is like you, you absolutely love it and you know you'd, you'd go and do it again for for what it's worth so um you know what like why why do you feel so strongly about uh the fact that it's so worth it for these some of these really quite long-term injuries Oh, crikey. Um, obviously, when you're doing it, you, you don't know about your injuries. You don't know they're going to be long term, you know, all of that stuff. You, you just live in the moment, don't you? And mm. every athlete, I think, will know, you know, you're really lucky as an athlete and a sort of top athlete if you manage to get through your career without an injury. You know, whether mm. that's just pulling a hamstring all the time or you tear a calf muscle, you know, simple things like that. So, yeah, for me, I was 
I always had sort of one hamstring that was sort of niggling all the time and always a bit of an issue. And it is to this day, if I'm not careful, you know, I can pinpoint the exact same spot on my hamstring that you know is always there. But apart from that, I was never, I never actually pulled, like majorly pulled a muscle. You know, I kind of had slight tears. So in that sense, I was kind of quite lucky. But yeah, for me, it was maybe that very first major crash that slipped one disc in my lower back. And then anyone knows if you've got disc problems, you kind of do one. And for us being in that bent over position as we sprint start, it puts a lot of pressure into that lower back as well. Then the, the G-force and pressures of the corners, if you had any other knocks and crashes, and you crashed a lot when you're learning. So I think a lot of that was quite bad luck, if you want to say. And for me, then my lower back and my discs um, yeah, have always then been a bit of a rusty chain effect that once one the pressure on the others so you know at one point I had at least three bulging discs in my lower back and one in my neck and you know pretty degenerative so yeah that's something I definitely have to live with which now even to this day I still get a lot of sciatic pain all the time down my leg um you know would have to have a lot of injections nerve root block injections and all the rest of it which Mm. You know, I, if I could, I'd still be having them now, but it's not really great for you. And NHS doctors don't like to do that. Um, yeah. And I think with knees, same thing. I think every one of us is potentially not made up 100% perfect inside. And it's only when you train your body to that extreme level every single day, will that slight wonk in your knee or that wonk in your hip or, you know, whatever um, will suddenly cause issues for you. And again, a knock on the track, knocking my knee slightly, training so hard from young ages, lifting weights, you know, that extreme level. Um, yeah, I sit here now having had four knee operations, pretty major ones at the end, metal bolts in knees and scars everywhere and this, that and t'other. And yeah, they, they still bother me. Um, I look like I do a lot of training through my Instagram videos, but um, most of the time I'm just doing five demos of a jumping squat or something because <laughs> I can't actually do anymore because it hurts. Or, you know, every day I, I walk down a little... Content. Say again? Do you, do you repeat the same content? So do you just edit it slightly <laughs> and then put out a week later? That's clever. No, well, I don't quite because I make sure I wear different outfits. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there are certain some, some things I just know. I just, it's not worth doing. I just can't do, the body doesn't like it. Um, you know, I walk down a hill and my knees are painful all the time. So, you know what? But like you say, you didn't know that when I stood on that podium or if I go back 15 years, you know, you didn't know that. And, you know, I have a gold medal now and at least I've got that to make it all worth it. And um, yeah, it it kind of gets you through and it's given me the life that I've got now. and. You know, it's uh, open doors to different things and the annoying body is just the kind of side effect. <laughs> I want to go into um, the approach, the, your mind over matter. How easy was it uh, fighting that, those injuries when you're running to get onto the skeleton? How hard was it to push through the, the hardness of your sore legs from running and the crashes and the psychology effects? Was, was it that hunger to get to the podium, the winning gold medal? Um, yeah, yeah, of course. I think, you know, with each injury, you manage it. So whether you've gone and had a knee op, had bits removed, you then have that rehab. And for me, those kind of particular injuries, when I was still competing, 
I always came back stronger. So I say to young athletes now, yeah, injuries sucks. You know, like they're crap. They're horrific. You, you're in a real low. But actually, when I had operations and the rest of the team were still lifting weights and training hard in the gym, you know, I would focus on all the other areas. So can you focus on other areas of your body, like stability work? Uh, you know, you can still always train your body, even let's just say when you're on crutches with one dodgy knee bandaged up after an operation you can still train the other leg you can still train your glutes you can still train everything else so that's one thing you still have all that other time potentially to work on your psychology work on for me studying tracks um how else can i get better when i can't squat like all the rest or you know what what else can you do to improve so i think because of that and you have this extra determination of I'm not going to let this injury beat me I'm going to beat this injury and that then always made me come out stronger stronger and faster so that was always sort of almost to try and flip that negative injury into a positive uh, I think apart from that yeah you might never be a hundred percent perfect at a race day and for us we're very used to even in our uh, competitive state, you might still be like working out a corner. You might still not have figured out a whole skeleton track and it's mm. still race day. And you're still kind of like, oh, I haven't quite cracked corner eight or nine. That's normal for us because, you know, we don't have these tracks to, to spend hundreds and hundreds and runs on. So that's quite a normal thing is that you still might be figuring things out. And even at the Olympics, you know, you, you still hadn't perfected the track but you'd focused in on the main corners that were the most important and yep. nailed those ones. Uh, yeah, even at the Olympic Games, I literally anyone with back disc problems, I, you know, bent over, put on a sock a few days before my race and straight away the disc had sort of, you know, gone a bit more and I was in agony. I remember, you know, going to the doctors and my physio that was there and you know they know your history they know every inch of your body in that sense yeah. and you know I was on as many painkillers legally that I was allowed to take because I was in agony barely able to bend over and even touch my sled and there you are that's at the Olympic Games but you have to block it out it's the same thing you can't this kind of mantra I always had control the controllables yeah. you can only control what you can control and do a hundred percent in those areas and then kind of what happens, happens. So, you know, you've done it, you put it to the back of your mind, you're then positive, right? I've done the best of my ability to that, fine. Now I'll crack on and I'll move on and, you know, um, focus, refocus and, and look ahead. Going back to the, the, the failure and you not being able to succeed, how, how important do you think it is to succeed? You were unlucky enough to not have to not go to some of the games because there was only one spot available. And then you managed to go to the 2010 Olympics and gain gold. How, how, do you, how important do you think that was to winning that gold? Mm, well, looking back, I think probably the best thing that happened was not getting that spot in Shirin. Who knows? You know, you kind of make up your own little stories, post it, don't you? Um, sure. But yeah, it was it was really tough to not go to those Turin Olympics in 2006. For us, it's all about where you are ranked in a nation, like all sports, you know, qualifications to get to an Olympic Games normally is how good you are as a nation, how where you are ranked, how many spots you earn and all the rest of it. So, yes, for those Turin Olympics, I think that the 
the guys got two spots on the team and the, the females, we just had one. So it was that battle, every single race, who's going to be the, the girl ranked at the top? Who's going to have the most amount of points? And whoever was top ranked, most amount of points got to go. So, um, yeah, I, I think it, it taught me. I was so obsessed in that year, in the build-up to Turin Games, focusing always on the other competitor. What is she doing? What is she doing that I'm not doing? How can I get quicker? All my competitors, you know, how can I get quicker than them? The focus was always on the other people rather than myself. And, you know, wanting it so badly, you know, wanting to be the best so badly that for us in our sport, you know, that puts an extra one, two percent tension in your body that you don't want when you're on the sled and all these different things. So, yeah, you know, it wasn't to be. And I went out, I was reserved, I decided to go out and I did all the commentating for the radio. I had to watch it, I had to commentate on it. And it was really hard to come away and think, that wasn't me, that wasn't me on the start line. And yet, when I look back, obviously, you know, it put this fire in my belly, it put this passion, it put this need and this one of, I have four years, four years pretty much to the day and my feet are going to be on that start line. And we knew if we did um, better as a team, which we did, we then qualified the two spaces. So, you know, as Great Britain, um, we, we got better and better and better. And, you know, we, the men then had three spaces in Vancouver. The women had two. So, uh, yeah, I just knew I had four years. So that was a major goal to be like, right, every day I will give 100%. I will give 100% to my training to everything in my life, my nutrition, my choices. I was in bed by half past nine every single night, you know, everything physically possible to make sure that I didn't miss that opportunity. And that big lesson of only focusing on me, only focusing on me is that kind of, there's a, someone did a quote of, um, what is it? You're, you're the only one who can make your boat go faster uh -huh. or there's some, so there's some other, you know, I'm the only one that can make my sled go fast. I'm the only one who lies on my sled and mm. makes my sled go fast. So I think it was kind of, you always have to look at your competitors. And for us, we study them. We watch what they're doing down the track. We watch their lines. You know, you can learn from your competitors and then you have to switch off yeah. and then you do your thing. And so, yeah, it was a big learning curve over those four years and obviously peaking up to those Vancouver games. Uh, so Amy, I've got a question regarding people are sort of age. So I'm really curious to know, based on where you are now with your sort of injuries, but your incredible experiences, and I absolutely love the kind of energy and compassion and, and drive that you've got as well. Would you be saying to people of our sort of age, go in there and go and chuck your body into these sort of things and make these sacrifices? Or would you be saying, you know, maybe maybe try and try doing something else like it's i know it's probably like a really difficult question i would say yeah just do it try everything um i don't know i just think um if you've got a passion for something if you're intrigued about something if you think you could be good at something then just give it a hundred percent go for it and um you know at the end of the day what's the worst that can happen you're either rubbish at it, you're not good at it, you don't quite make it, but then at least you've tried. And yeah, I'm literally, I'm, I'm writing a book right now. I was meant to have finished it back in October. Um, now trying to finish it by the end of February. And I am writing it literally for, well, younger than you, teenage years, and, and really giving top tips and lessons for 
that kind of teenage age group who want to get good at sport you know how can you reach that high performance and do all these you know little tiny things to to achieve it so yeah i i just think even now if someone asked me to do something and i'm slightly intrigued i'll just say yes like i've done rallying now you know i've I've done all these different things, being in a car, you know, a racing car and all the rest of it. And I just think, give it a go. Like, say yeah. yes, give it your best shot. If you hate it, then stop. But if there's something in you and put it this way, when I first did those, that first army camp um, on Skeleton, I didn't love it. I didn't fall in love with this sport instantly. But there was that little niggle inside of me that was like, you could be really good at this. Like you have got enough, you tick enough boxes to potentially be really good. And that was enough. That was enough to then really kind of drop everything else and just really focus in on that one thing. So, um, you know, you live once, don't you? And you're only young once. And if it's a physical thing, your body, you know, you've got a bit of a time limit to what you can do at a certain age with your body. So just yeah, give it your all, but at the same time, make sure you do have a backup plan. You know, make sure you are half studying something. You know, I, I joined university, I then quit. I then in the end did a part-time degree. Now I further done, um, you know, personal training qualifications and mm. now have my own personal training business. So I think you always do need to have that backup plan, especially if it is sport, you could get injured, you might not make that team and all the rest of it. So. Um, but yeah, it's it's always worth it. Well, that's some really, really good advice. I've got far, two final questions before we go into the two truths, one lie. The first one, I've had so many people saying, you know, what do you actually call someone that does skeleton? I've had loads of ideas like someone, is it a skeet? Is it a skelete? Like, there's so many different things I've had. <laughs> is, is there actually a word for someone that does skeleton racing? So we just call ourselves skeleton athletes. That's it. So we either say that we um, are a slider. So we are, the terminology is that we slide. We are sled. So it's a sled. That's what we call our piece of equipment. Whereas lots of people call it sledges or um, I don't know, all other things. So it's, it's a sled to us. Uh, it's a nice track. We are sliders or some people call us riders, but that I think that's a bit more snowboardery sort of terminology mm, yeah. so yeah we would just say we are a skeleton athlete that's it a lot of people started putting bob bob skeleton because of bobsleigh and oh, people yeah. didn't know what skeleton was but we're like no no we're not bob skeleton we are just skeleton our sport yeah. is skeleton we are sliders yeah we have a sled and yeah so i don't know i think i've answered your question <laughs> <laughs> love it okay awesome and the, the final question i've got what would you say your fondest most incredible memories from your time in vancouver and the time after that oh wow oh crikey i mean i wish i could go back and relive because it's in one sense such a blur oh i don't know i mean i i remember standing at the top of that start line at my olympic race uh i had my helmet on and i remember just taking a big deep breath looking across at the amazing view up at the Black Coon Mountain. I could see one of my, the original coach, the one that deserted me at the track yeah, all those yeah. years ago. He was on one side. My other coach was holding my sled. And I remember kind of just looking, thinking, okay, you've got to enjoy this. Like, this is your moment. Hell, why are you doing this if you don't enjoy it? And, you know, I kind of have that memory quite a lot of taking that breath. Clearly, I was very nervous and my legs were shaking all at the same time. But trying to get that kind of real peace and calm. I think the friendships 
the friendships that I made. I still now even talk to the now ex, um, the Australian skeleton girls, the German girls that were then second and third next to me on the podium. You know, those friendships will be with me for life. And that's an amazing feeling as well, that you've got this bond for life with, for me, my two friends that will all, all like either side of me. So yeah, I think that, and, and also now I've got two little boys, um, a one and a half and a three and a half year old. And I just think it'll be awesome one day when they really realize, you know, when they talk about odd bits and mummy, you, you know, yeah. they see something on TV, was that you, mummy, what are you doing? And I think it'll be lovely when it kind of clicks with them. Oh yeah, like amazing. you actually did that. Um, so that will be pretty cool. That's amazing. Absolutely love to hear it. Um, our final thing, as we do at the end of all these podcasts, is two truths, one lie. And I gather Angus did give you some pre-warning, uh, which we sometimes forget to do, but remembered on this occasion. Um, so, yeah, have you got two truths and, well, three statements, and then we can guess the lie? I do. Okay. So, here goes. These are my three statements. The first one is, I love spicy food. The second okay. one is, I can play the violin. The third one is... I wish I was an Olympic show jumper. So there we go. Two truths, one lie from Amy Williams. We will be revealing the lie at the beginning of next week's episode. Now, as mentioned previously, the Armago app is going to be launching very, very soon in Bristol University. The app provides you with an easy way to find others to play sport with based on your location, ability and availability. We're a student team and have been working on this for the last 19 months. So stay tuned and if you want to have a look at what's to come, then head over to our Instagram page or our website at www.armago.io. Thank you for listening and see you again next week.